Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans chapter 8, I will invite you to be getting your Bible out, opening it up to Romans the 8th chapter as well as we get ready to study from the Word of God over the course of these next few minutes. As you're turning to Romans chapter 8, and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will just echo what was announced a little bit ago, and that is a very pleasant good morning to you. So glad that you are here. We're grateful for our visitors. we got folks that are passing through. we got folks that are locals who are visiting with us, and uh, glad to have our members as well. Don't say that often enough either, but just so uh, delighted that you've chose to be with us here upon this beautiful first day of the week to worship God and to give Him the praise and honor that He is so justly due. I'm reading in Romans the 8th chapter, and if you were here last Sunday night, then these verses should certainly sound familiar to you as I preached from the first half of Romans chapter 8, and Lord willing, I'll preach from the second half of Romans chapter 8 tonight, but I do need to revisit verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 this morning. So read with me if you will in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. There Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Where is the battle with the flesh? Where is the battle for men and women's souls? Where is that battle taking place? I think our normal inclination is to say that that battle is being waged and influenced by by external forces. We think maybe by, by Hollywood and all the filth and smut that they crank out regularly. Or maybe that battle's being waged by, by like the internet and all of the smut and the filth and the terrible temptations that are just a, that are just a click away. I think it's very easy for us to point at all of these outside sources and say, now now there, there is the problem. Or you know that right there, that's what's causing people to lose their souls by the droves. Or you know what, this over here, this is where the battle with sin is being lost. Well in Romans chapter 8, Paul says otherwise. Paul says that that battle is actually not fought externally. He says it's fought inside. That the battle between the spirit and the flesh, it is being waged in the mind. We spend a fair amount of time Sunday night talking about the mind that is set on the spirit. What does it mean to be spiritually minded? But this morning I need to devote a few minutes of our time together to the other side of that equation. I need us to think a little bit about the mind that is set on the flesh. I want us to take a look inside, your translation might render it, The carnal mind. What's going on inside the mind of the carnal person? What does the carnally minded individual think? What do they think, for example, about God? What do they think and what do they believe about sin? What kind of internal discussion is taking place on a person whose mind is set and fixed on the things of the flesh? If our passage in Romans chapter 8 is true, and it most certainly is, that a carnal mind creates hostility with God, it causes a person to die spiritual death, then we want to understand about that. We want to understand what that looks like. Because make no mistake about it, even in a good crowd like this on a Sunday morning, 
in a crowd of people who at least appear to be spiritually minded. I'm looking out and I'd like to think that most everybody I'm looking at is a spiritually minded person. It is possible, you realize. It is possible that you could be sitting in this assembly today and yet still be carnally minded. It is possible for us to parade around religiously. We get all dressed up and wear our nice church clothes and we carry around our Bible in the upright and pious position and we act like we really, really are about God. But if all of that is just an act, if it's all just pretend, then of course the Lord will be able to see right through that. The Lord has x-ray vision. I can't see what's going on in your mind, but God can see what's going on in your mind. And if that is the case, verse 8... You will not and you cannot please God. And so this morning we're looking into the carnal mind. And we want to better understand how that works. And the place that I want us to do that from is not Romans the 8th chapter. It's actually in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Psalms. Would you find Psalm chapter 10? In the 10th Psalm, the psalmist exposes, I believe... The carnal, fleshly mindset. Maybe does that in this chapter better than, better than anywhere else in the Bible. What does the carnally minded person think? What kind of internal dialogue is taking place inside the head of the carnal thinker? Well, Psalm chapter 10 is going to help us with that. Read with me beginning in verse 1. Psalm 10 verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, those first four verses, I think, are a very revealing introduction to the carnal mind. The psalmist here describes it as the wicked person. But really the centerpiece of all of that is found right there at the end of verse 4, where we notice that in his thoughts, in his thinking, there is an absence of God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, I want us to understand very carefully what this is describing here. This is not what we would describe as philosophical atheism. Philosophical atheism has been popularized in recent years by people like Stephen Hawking, or maybe it seems like one of his predecessors is this Neil deGrasse Tyson, or maybe you've heard names like Christopher Hitchin or Richard Dawkins. These are the guys who have written best-selling books, and they're always in the media, and they're advancing all of their atheistic views. These are the people who, to their credit, have actually sat down. And they have examined the evidence. They have studied and they have read the Bible. They've actually thought about this long and hard. They've weighed the evidences for evolution and the evidences for creation. And they've come to some conclusions about all of that. And of course, these guys get lots and lots of attention. And their books sell millions and millions of copies. But the truth of the matter is, most people are never going to be atheists like those guys. Most people are not going to be philosophically minded based on some careful reasoning. Oh yes, I've, I've read the Bible all the way through. And I've studied the evolutionary theory. I've studied the Big Bang theory. I've studied all these sorts of things. And I've sat down and I've considered it. And I've given really careful thought to this. And I've come to the conclusion that there is no God. 
Most people are not going to do that. Most people are never going to do that. And you need to know that that's not the guy who's described here in Psalm 10 verse 4. The guy in Psalm 10 verse 4, he's not making his decision based on a conviction or based on reason. The man in Psalm 10 verse 4 is not a philosophical atheist. He's what we would call a functional atheist. That is, this is the man who has decided, he's decided, I'm just not going to think about God. I'm not really concerned about the big debate of whether there is a God or there's not a God. I'm just not going to think about God at all. This is the person who is uninterested in God. They are unconcerned with God. This is the person who just deliberately chooses to ignore God on a day-to-day basis as this person goes about their daily lives, as they come and as they go and as they do all the things that they have to do. God is the furthest thing from his mind. And while I cannot say that I have met very many philosophical atheists in my lifetime, I fear that I know lots of functional atheists just like this guy People who have banished God from their existence. It's not that God has been banished from existence. No, they've just banished God from their own existence. And so they don't care about God. And they're not interested in Him. They don't really want to hear anything about the Lord. Functional atheists are, well, they're everywhere. You go to work with them. You go to school with them. They live in your community. They are maybe even sitting in church buildings this very morning. They are the kind of people who if somebody asked, hey, everybody in the room who believes in God, raise your hand. They they would probably raise their hand. But in their daily lives, in the things that they do, they do not take God into account. They do not factor the God of heaven into their decision-making. And they sure don't listen to what God has said and expressed through His written Word. Their only thought is about living the way that they want to live. In fact, one translation renders Psalm 10 verse 4. I actually like this one a lot. It renders it that in all His thoughts, there is no room for God. That's it. In all His thoughts, He has no room for God which really kind of pushes us right now. And it causes you and I to do some thinking. How much thinking am I doing about the Lord? I would suppose that right now, while we're here in this assembly, maybe it's very easy for us to think about God as we've sung these songs about the Lord, as we've offered prayers unto Him. I'm preaching from the Word of God right now. Pretty easy to think about God right here in this place. But what about on a day-to-day basis? As I go about my daily activities, how much thinking am I doing about God? Do I acknowledge Him in all my ways, as the wise man says in Proverbs 3, verse 6? Or is it possible that for you, God really is only the God of of this church building? Is it possible that you live your life the way that you want to Monday through Saturday, but then on Sunday morning you come here to this place, and for an hour or two, yeah... I need to visit the God of this building. He dwells here in this place. And when I'm in here, I need to to act in a certain way and need to talk in a certain way and just conduct my life in a certain way when I'm doing these religious things. But, of course, once the final amen is said, I'm out that back door and bang! I'm going back to living the way that I want to live. I'm not so much thinking about God anymore. Is it possible that there is no room for God in all of your thoughts? 
Psalm 10 verse 4 talks about functional atheism this morning. And I'm asking you, as we think about the beginning of being a carnally minded person, I'm asking you, are you in that verse? Is it possible that there's just not enough room for God in your mind? Because your mind is just filled with just everything else. All the stuff that this world has to offer. All the pursuits that you can engage your life in. Is it possible that you're in church today, but on the whole, you're a carnal-minded person? That, of course, leads to just every kind of iniquity. It leads to every kind of problem. In fact, in fact, our text goes on to say that. Would you read there in Psalm chapter 10? Pick up in verse 5. In verse 5 about this carnally-minded person, his ways prosper at all times. God, your judgments are on high out of his sight. And as for all his foes, he he puffs at them. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. What does the carnally minded person think? Well, I'll tell you, not only does the carnally minded person not think about God, but furthermore, the carnally minded person has convinced themselves that, you know what, sin works. And it's just going to keep on working. That sin is the way to go. Living for this world is the way to go. It's what leads to the good life. Verse 5, this man says, I'm succeeding in my sin. Verse 6, I'm going to be free from troubles forever if I just keep on doing this. And that, of course, is really interesting because usually, what's the Scriptures tell us about carnally minded people like that? I'm thinking, for example, the very beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 verse 4, that the carnally minded person is blown away like the chaff. But, but of course, who wants to hear that? Who wants to think about their life just kind of crumpling up into nothingness, withering away and blowing away? The sinner, the sinner doesn't want to think about that. In fact, the sinner, the carnally minded person, they're not thinking about that at all. Instead, they look around... And since it doesn't seem like God is just smoting people on the spot, well, then that must mean that sin is is all right. There must be something to this. And even I'm prospering from it. I'm doing pretty good in my life. Maybe I'm doing well materially or financially. And so since God isn't doing anything about that, if there really even is a God out there, hey, the way to get ahead in life is this path. This is the way to do business. The way to live it up, to be really happy is with sin and sinful pleasures. Just throw off the rules. No need to worry about self-control and discipline and restraint. Just do what feels good because this feels right. What the sinner does, the carnally minded person does, is they look at sin and they say, what's the downside there? Maybe what that person fails to take into account though is that our universe is governed... Our universe is governed by certain laws. And it really doesn't matter whether you like those laws or not. They are in place. And those laws apply to all of us. I'm thinking, for example, about the law of gravity. It's not called the suggestion of gravity. It's the law of gravity. And I don't care who you are, if you miss the top step of the ladder, you're going to learn what the law of gravity is all about. And there are lots of laws like that in our universe. Would you hold your place here in Psalm 10? Look in Galatians 6. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, here is one of those unavoidable, immutable laws that has been set in place in our universe. And there's nothing you and I can do about this. In Galatians chapter 6, this is spiritual law 
There the Bible says, Galatians 6 verse 7, in fact even talking about the spirit and the flesh idea again, Galatians 6 verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That law says you reap what you sow. And please do not imagine that that law only applies in eternity. I think that's where our mind just naturally goes, okay, yeah, it's talking about eternity. That yeah, if you do bad stuff now, well then yeah, later on you're going to get bad stuff. Well, that is true. There is a sense in which divine judgment enters into that picture there. But you need to also understand that sowing and reaping, that happens now. Young people, you need to think about this because this is stuff that young people don't think about. You are sowing and reaping now in this life. That if you sow lies, what do you expect to reap from that? If you sow promiscuity, what do you think is going to grow up there? If you sow alcohol and drugs and other things to the flesh, to the carnal self, then what kind of harvest do you expect you're going to reap? Why is it then when the sinner says, the carnal person says, hey, I can give in to the ways of the flesh. I can do what I want to do in reckless disregard for others, in reckless disregard for my own soul. I'll do what brings me the most pleasure and most satisfaction, even if it defies the express will of God. And then somehow in the end, I'm going to reap this big bountiful harvest of goodies and blessings to me. How in the world does anybody think that that's possible? What would make anybody think that they can somehow be the exception to the rule? That the one time that the farmer plants corn, somehow watermelon just grows up in its place. That would be just as unlikely as the person who takes the road of sin and carnality and thinking somehow that it's going to result in the truly good and blessed life. Who is so foolish as to believe that I can sow all of this degradation and filth and ungodliness and worldliness and somehow in the end reap a harvest of good things? Who would believe that? Especially in our world today. You turn on the television or turn on your computer and we see athletes and musicians and celebrities of every kind who think that they can somehow send their way to the good life. That they can just live in rebellion. They can just live in ungodliness. And it's going to lead to this wonderful, productive, and happy life. And the more and more that they sin, the more and more they find that that's just not true. The further and further they get to where they actually want to be. Why would anybody believe that they can somehow make sin work the way of the carnal flesh when no one ever has made that work? We reap what we sow. And as we turn back to Psalm chapter 10, I think we see exactly why the carnal person thinks that he or she can be the exception to that rule. Would you look again at verses 5 and 6? Notice the arrogance and the pride with which he thinks and talks in his own mind. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. He didn't see your judgments, Lord. As for all his foes, he... He puffs at them. Just kind of props himself up. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I'll not be moved. Throughout all generations, I'll not meet adversity. Secure against God. Secure against his enemy. The carnal-minded person, he boasts inwardly and he says, I've got it made. 
There's nothing that can touch me. It kind of sounds an awful lot to me like that rich farmer in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. That guy was carnally minded, wasn't he? He wasn't thinking about God. All he was thinking about was his barns and building bigger barns and having lots of stuff and how he can get even more stuff. And he thought he was so secure in all of his things that is until God met him one night and said, You fool, this night, This night, you're going to reap what you've sown. But of course, whenever you take God out of that equation, that was point number one, then it's pretty easy to decide that you can sin your way to better things and that nothing's ever going to stop you, which actually leads right into this third and final thought that the carnally-minded person entertains, and that is this, and that is that I can get away with it. I am going to get away with it. I'm going to get away with all the things that I'm doing and there's really nothing that I need to worry about. Pick up in verse 7. Listen to what the carnal person, not only does he think, but now listen to what he does. Psalm 10 verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless, lurking in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor, and he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down. They fall by his might. He says in his heart, this is what he says. This is internal dialogue. God has forgotten. God's forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call it into account? I think in many ways verse 11 and then verse 13 really well summarize the carnal mindset that God, even if He is there, He's not seeing what I did. Or maybe He's got kind of a short-term memory and He's just kind of forgotten And you know, even if God did see that, and even if He does remember it, He's he's not going to do anything about it. He's definitely going to do anything, not to me. God would never judge me. And this highlights, I believe, the most common and deadly way of justifying sin. That I can get away with this. that, That I'll be the exception. I'll not be condemned. I'll not be called into account. I'll not be found out. Can I borrow very quickly from two Old Testament stories to illustrate the absolute fallacy of that? Look with me first of all in Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, this is the story of a man by the name of Achan. And Joshua tells us that the people of Israel, they all ended up angering the Lord. Well, why did all of Israel anger the Lord? Well, it was actually because of one guy, this guy named Achan. Joshua 7 verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things... For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You remember that in chapter 6, when Israel destroyed the city of Jericho, they were to take nothing of the spoils of the city for themselves. Achan violated that law. He saw some things, he coveted those things, and so he stole them, he took them for himself. And as a result of that, the Israelites then go into the next battle, into the city of Ai, and they lose that battle. Here they've been winners, 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 losers. Whoa, what happened here? Why'd we get defeated here? 
They got defeated because God withdrew Himself from them. He was not with them. Let me ask you, how do you think Achan felt when that loss occurred? When that army came home from battle that day, and they were dragging their wounded, and they were carrying maybe some dead soldiers on gurneys, and somebody said, what in the world happened here? What took place? I thought God was with us. And someone finally speaks up and says, God wasn't with us. God wasn't with us today. What do you think Achan felt in the pit of his stomach? Nobody else knew why they were defeated at Ai, but Achan knew. And so Joshua calls out the people one by one. They all pass before him in tribes, then in clans, then in families. Then we get down to verse 20, Joshua 7 verse 20. Then Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. What I want you to see is that Achan thought that he had gotten away with it. Nobody saw, nobody knew, and God made sure. God made sure that he was found out. We'll see that again. Look in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11... Lest you're tempted to look at the story of Achan and say, well, you know, we don't know a whole lot about that guy, so I'm just going to guess he probably was just a real wicked person. Eh, that's the only way to explain, explain that guy. He must have just been a real evil person. And there's no doubt he's a fully carnally minded person. No doubt about that. He thought he could get away with that. All right. I would suggest to you that even if that was true, that does not exempt people that we would still call righteous people. In fact, the guy that we're introduced here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a man who's described as a man after God's own heart. And look at what he told himself. Look at what he thought. I'm reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is King David, verse 1. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon that when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about that woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. You know, it must have been very easy for David to imagine to himself that he could get away with this. I mean, after all, he was the king, right? But instead what happened is, is it just got complicated. It just became a web of, of cover-ups. In fact, sometimes he even had to cover up his cover-ups. But it always seemed in the end, it always seemed to still kind of work out fine. Oh, whew, off the hook there. Nobody found out, nobody knew. That is until, until chapter 12, verse 1, when the Lord sends a prophet to come to him. And Nathan confronts him and says in verse 7, You are the man. I want you to notice from that famous story that the Lord deliberately and intentionally orchestrated events in order to expose sin. That the darkness would be exposed by the light. It would be brought to bear. And in both of those stories, what we see is we see people who had convinced themselves, I can get away with it. Yet God made double sure that they did not. And unfortunately, that exact same scenario continues to play out day after day, even today. As the carnally minded person thinks that they can sin, and they can hide it, 
they can cover it up, and that no one will ever know. Yet at the same time, what God is doing is God is diligently dragging that out. God is diligently shining the light to expose that sin. God is diligently seeing to it that everybody knows, and if not everybody knows, at least the Lord will know, and they will know that the Lord knows. Let me ask you, if you got those things kind of going on in that kind of a tug of war, who do you think is going to win? The carnal person over here trying to hide it, and God over here trying to expose it, who's going to win that battle? You know who's going to win. Stop and just think about how the Lord looks when He looks down at the universe that He created. You know, everything in our universe does exactly what God wants it to do all of the time, every time. The planets and the stars, they're all perfectly set in their place and in their motions. In fact, they are so constant and they are so certain that we can know precisely where constellations are, like the Orion or there's the Big Dipper. In fact, people out in the middle of the sea, they can guide their path out in the sea just by looking up at the placement of those stars. The stars, the planets, they don't ever get themselves discombobulated and say, yeah, you know what, I don't, I don't want to be in this galaxy anymore. Jupiter can't say, you know what, I don't like being in the Milky Way galaxy. I'm going over here to the Andromeda. I'm going to go hang out over there for a while. No, the planets don't do that. The stars don't do that. They always do exactly what God made them to do. Think about the animal kingdom. If you encounter a bear, what's a bear going to do? A bear is going to do bear things. If you encounter a skunk, what's a skunk going to do? A skunk is going to do what God made it to do. I wrote in the bulletin this morning about the cicadas. The cicadas are out right now. What are cicadas going to do? Cicadas are going to do the things that God hardwired them to do. All of God's creation does exactly as He created it to do without fail except, except you and I. We are the only creatures that God has given free will to. We are the only ones that He has given the ability to choose and to decide, hey, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, or to decide I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. And so in all of the universe, where everything is perfectly obeying God like clockwork, all of the time, every time, only humans, only you and I are the exception to that rule. Can I ask you, do you think God doesn't notice that? When God looks down and He sees all the perfectness of His, the order of His creation working exactly as it should, do you think He doesn't notice that big ugly spot standing out that is our sin? You think He doesn't see that big ugly blot just kind of glowing and beaming down from earth? In the middle of all of that, God sees it. How could He miss it when you and I are the only ones that defy Him? And yet the carnal person, Since they're not thinking about God, they convince themselves, I can get away with it. I will be the exception to that exception. God's forgotten. God has hidden His face. God will never see me. But would you notice some of the final verses in that psalm, in Psalm 10? Look in verse 14. In Psalm 10 and in verse 14, listen to what the psalmist then cries out to God. Psalm 10 verse 14, But God, you do see... You do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, and you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness into account until you find none. 
try as he or she may to hide their sins from God, regardless of what the sinner tells themselves in their minds, those efforts are all futile and in vain. In the words of Moses in Numbers chapter 32, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, as I step back and look at what Psalm chapter 10 has exposed for us this morning, what the carnally minded person is saying in their inner dialogue, I think there's maybe just one really big takeaway for you and I this morning. And that is that if you've paid attention at all today, if you have been open and if you have been receptive to the Word of God, then what that means is is that means that planted in your heart is the very Word of God. Which means that if any of these lame justifications for sin should ever arise, oh, I'm just not really going to think about God. Oh, you know what? I, I, I think sin is, this is really the way to go. This is the way to really be enjoying myself and being successful. Or you know, even if this is bad, hey, there's nothing bad ever going to come from that. I'm never going to suffer from that. Those are lame. Those are filled with holes and problems. Psalm 10 has shown us that. If you have received and understood what the Word of God is telling us, then what that means is is that means that the next time that those justifications enter into our conscience, what will happen is God's Word will scream out and say, No! Absolutely not! Don't think that way. Don't think the way carnal-minded people think. Because what our time in Psalm 10 has helped us with this morning is to realize not only what the carnal person thinks. But it also reveals to us the very things that the spiritually minded person refuses to think. We need to set our minds on the Spirit and not set our minds on the things of the flesh. Perhaps there's one here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of the Lord. Stand and we're going to sing the song that's been chosen as an invitation song here in just a second, number 317, All Things Are Ready. It is an opportunity for you, if you never have before, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, to confess and announce your faith in Jesus as God's Son, to repent and turn from sin, to realize, you know what, this doesn't lead to the good life, and there's no way I'm going to get away with this. I need to just leave that behind. I need to turn myself toward the Lord. If you have that understanding and have that conviction this morning, then this morning you're ripe and ready to be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And we would love nothing more than to assist you in doing just that so that your sins can be washed away. God will add you to His family. And you can go on your way today as a Christian with your mind set on the Spirit. Don't you make today the day that you make that life-changing decision. If you are a Christian, but you have allowed your thinking to become corrupted, maybe at one time your mind was set fully on the things of the Spirit, but the devil has been very active. The fact of the matter is, the devil wants nothing more than for the saved to become unsaved. And the way that he does that is in the mind, to get us to change how we think. Brother or sister, if your mind has been changed and been fixated on the things of this world too much, then today's the day to correct course. Let us help you. Let us encourage you. If we can pray with you, do anything today so that you can serve the Lord in a better way. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known. You can do that by coming to the front. Do that while we stand and while we sing.